You're listening to the Fueled and Free podcast. I'm your host, Margaret, a holistic nutritionist, bringing you real talk and thought-provoking conversations on food, the wellness world, women's health topics, and life. Remember, the information shared in this podcast is not to be taken as individual or medical advice. Hello and welcome. In this episode, I'm doing a deep dive on PCOS, also known as polycystic ovarian syndrome. It affects one in seven women. And in this episode, I'm covering what is PCOS? What are the signs and symptoms? How is it diagnosed? What are the mainstream treatment options for PCOS? We're going to talk about functional labs and how they can give more insight into managing your symptoms strategies to start healing your PCOS, including ways to balance your blood sugar, should you avoid carbs, my thoughts on caffeine, repleting your minerals, supplements to consider, strength training, sleep hygiene, and more. Get out your notebook. This is going to be a good one. PCOS. So this is by far the most common endocrine disruptor. It affects anywhere from one to seven women. I personally was never diagnosed with PCOS, but when I went off of birth control, I had a ton of PCOS type symptoms. Looking back, I probably would have had a PCOS diagnosis. And I do remember going to my doctor to try to find out why I was having such long menstrual cycles. I had extremely oily skin, tons of acne, all the signs of blood sugar dysregulation. And I just remember my doctor did not know what to do with me. I was offered to go back on birth control and just referred out to my dermatologist to try to figure out what was going on with my skin, you know, to try to troubleshoot my acne. And at the time, I just was not willing to go back on a prescription medication to manage my symptoms. I totally understand why people with PCOS do opt to go on birth control because as someone that's dealt with really rough periods and irregular cycles and lots of symptoms surrounding my period... Sometimes there is a point in time where you hit your breaking point and you're just like, I need this chaos and this inflammation and these symptoms to just go away. I need a break. So I just want to put that out there as we dig in on this episode and talk more on PCOS. If you're on birth control and you've been kind of avoiding the symptoms and you're trying to just like suppress and ignore, I get it. I completely get it. This is a judgment-free zone. While I am an advocate to help women get off of birth control and learn how to naturally balance their hormones and learn how to tune into their cycles and not look at their cycle as this thing to dread. I fully acknowledge that not all of us are blessed with easy menstrual cycles. And sometimes digging out of that takes time and intention and resources and tools. And sometimes we are not in a place to do that. So just want to put that right out there. Before we even dive in, this is not going to be an episode to like shame you if you're on birth control and you have PCOS. But for me, since that time, those symptoms have gone away for me. And I've had the opportunity to work with quite a few women in my practice who have PCOS and they're trying to regulate their cycles, manage their symptoms, or get pregnant. And I just wanted to say PCOS is not a death sentence on your fertility by any means. I know that it's very common for women with PCOS to be told that they may not ever be able to get pregnant naturally, that they're going to likely have to do IVF. That is not necessarily true. And so let's dive in on PCOS. Okay. So it for sure brings a slew of symptoms. It's ultimately a dysfunction of the metabolism period, point blank period. It's a sign of a metabolism that needs some attention. And what happens is it's manifesting in hormonal-related symptoms that can affect your period, your skin, your weight, your mood, your energy, your fertility. I'm going to list through some of the symptoms here in a minute, but I just want to say, remember that your menstrual cycle is your body's way of sounding an alarm when something's off. Your menstrual cycle is like a fifth vital sign. When something is off, it's an invitation to get curious and assess what's going on. Now, again, I fully acknowledge that there is a time and a place to dig in and do this work. And so if you're kind of in that place of like, I don't want to deal with it right now, I get it. But you're ignoring something that the longer you wait, the worse those issues can become. According to the Androgen Excess Society, 
PCOS should be diagnosed using the following criteria. So number one, hyperandrogenism, high amounts of androgen hormones, basically, such as testosterone or DHEA. Number two, there's usually ovarian dysfunction, lack of ovulation or delayed ovulation, cycles are longer than 35 days, or there's fewer than nine periods per year. And then number three, polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. That is the presence of 12 or more follicles on each ovary, or there's an increased ovarian volume. Women are typically diagnosed with PCOS when they have two of the three criteria that I just went through, okay? However, physicians can diagnose PCOS based on several criteria. And I I see this a lot in my practice where a woman will come to me and they're like, oh yeah, my doctor told me that I have PCOS. And they're being told that they have PCOS just simply because they have oily skin and acne and some unwanted hair growth, all right? So some of those symptoms can indicate higher than normal androgen levels. Um, This can include acne along the jawline, the chest, the back, which that was probably my number one PCOS symptom. I used to have horrific acne on my jawline and yes, even on my chest and back. Unwanted hair growth on the chin and or chest. It's common to see weight loss resistance as well. Also blood tests, including blood glucose levels being off, um, A1C, insulin, circulating androgens being out of normal range. Or some doctors will do a physical or pelvic exam to look for enlarged ovaries or other signs of increased androgens. All right. So let's go through and talk about some of those symptoms that are very common with PCOS. I've already touched on the acne, the hair growth on the face, hair loss on the head, the weight gain and obesity is common for some people, or just it's difficult to lose weight. And that's mostly tied to the insulin resistance that's going on. Sometimes you will see male pattern hair loss irregular cycles, delayed ovulation. Um, Sometimes you will see very heavy bleeding, long periods, pelvic pain, lots of inflammation, type 2 diabetes. You're more at risk for developing type 2 diabetes when you have insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure. It's common to see abnormal cholesterol levels, headaches, fatigue, mood changes, poor sleep, infertility, high prolactin levels on a blood test, high luteinizing hormone or LH levels on a blood test, elevated LH2 follicle stimulating hormone, which is your FSH. There's a ratio that doctors will look at. So if you have an elevated LH to FSH ratio, that can sometimes point to PCOS. It's been said that women with PCOS have an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, cancer, and type 2 diabetes, which if you think about it, that makes sense because ultimately, like I said, PCOS is a dysfunction of the metabolism. And when our body is not functioning optimally, it's going to increase our risk factor for developing inflammatory dysfunctions and diseases in the body. There's three types of PCOS that I want to go through with you. So number one, the common one that you often see is what is known as insulin resistant PCOS. High levels of insulin interfere with ovulation and this causes irregular cycles and other symptoms like weight gain, for some people weight loss, acne, mood swings, thinning hair on the head. Women with this kind of PCOS usually have blood sugar and insulin levels that would suggest prediabetes or even diabetes. If you're not familiar with insulin resistance, I just want to quick review what that means. I feel like that's a common term thrown around in the functional medicine world or in the health and wellness world. And I have to remember that not everyone knows what insulin resistance actually means. Insulin is responsible for regulating your blood sugar. And so when you eat, your blood sugar naturally rises your pancreas secretes insulin to move that sugar out of your bloodstream and into your cells. However, the vast majority of women with PCOS don't respond normally to insulin, okay? Their body starts to become resistant to that insulin. And so instead of moving that sugar out of the bloodstream after a meal or after a snack, those blood sugar levels remain high, which causes your pancreas to secrete even more insulin to get that job done. And again, ultimately what happens is you don't respond well to 
carbohydrates because when you consume them, your body has a hard time bringing your blood sugar levels back to normal. Imagine trying to put out a fire that keeps burning no matter how much water you pour on it. Eventually you put out that fire, but you end up using nearly three times as much water as you should have. It's very similar. Excess insulin will impact ovulation. It contributes to chronic inflammation. It's associated with diabetes and high blood pressure. It's a very common condition. And again, it's in your cells just become resistant to insulin. All right. We'll, we'll talk a little bit later on about ways to support that and, and address that. I also would encourage you to go back to episode one. I did a beginner's guide to metabolism. And I talk a lot about balancing blood sugar in one of the first episodes of this podcast. So number two, the second type of PCOS is known as inflammation-based PCOS. This type is most common seen in women who are not overweight. They don't present with the classic symptoms of PCOS. The inflammation might be caused by factors like food intolerances, exposure to environmental toxins, an underlying virus. Um, or a low-level injury that's causing inflammation, gut dysbiosis, or leaky gut. Or it's even been said that an over-reliance on sweeteners and high glycemic foods, so a poor diet, leads to this type of PCOS. Then we have the synthetic hormone-induced PCOS, also known as post-birth control PCOS, which I'm pretty sure that's the kind that I would have been diagnosed with. Common for women that have been on the pill, or any other form of hormonal birth control, whether you did an implant, uh, the Depo-Provera shot, or like NuvaRing for a long time, they'll come off and periods don't return or cycles are super irregular. For me, when I went off of birth control, I had very long menstrual cycles where I would go like 45 days between periods. And then when my period would show up, I had a lot of symptoms, a lot of PMS. And what happens is that synthetic hormones that you're getting when you're on birth control, it shuts down communication between the pituitary gland and the ovaries in order to prevent pregnancy. And it can just take work and time to bring this communication channel back online. And so it's almost like there's sluggish communication between the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the ovaries, and you'll just see either delayed cycles, lack of a menstrual cycle after being on birth control or very irregular cycles. It's like the body is just not catching the signal that it's time to have a normal cycle again. PCOS is not just a problem with the ovaries. So we also want to look at other areas of the body that there could be dysfunction. Typically, if someone has PCOS or symptoms of PCOS, there are issues with the adrenal glands and the thyroid as well. So I just wanted to point that out. Let's talk about how PCOS is typically treated in the mainstream medicine world. You go to your doctor, you know, get that diagnosis. What does treatment look like? What are your options? I touched earlier on birth control, hormonal birth control. That's probably the most common one for women that are diagnosed with PCOS, especially if your PCOS is bringing with that a lot of hormonal symptoms like a very symptomatic menstrual cycle or a very irregular period. The second option is metformin. So this is actually a first line medication for those that suffer with type 2 diabetes. It's presented as a PCOS treatment for those who are overweight or obese, or they're, they're struggling with insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. It works by reducing overall insulin levels. Again, metformin, or birth control, while it's prescribed to help manage symptoms, it's only a band-aid solution. It ignores root causes of why this is happening. And so while things might seem better on the surface, the root causes of your PCOS go unaddressed. They often get worse, which means that when you stop the pill or you stop your metformin, your symptoms can return with a vengeance. And I've seen this time and time again. Birth control or the pill, which we know can come with a slew of side effects, both short-term and long-term, including increased risk of blood clots, increased risk of certain cancers, thyroid disorders, you are much more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression, which actually, when I learned that information, I was on the IUD when I read a book by Dr. Kelly Brogan. It was called A Mind of Your Own, 
Highly recommend that book. And I read that book while I was on the IUD. And I think I called my doctor a day later and was like, I need this IUD taken out right now. Because at the time, I was personally experiencing a lot of anxiety and depression and mental health disorders run in my family. And so when I learned that information, it became very important to me to reduce my risk factor, which is why I went off of birth control in the first place. Birth control depletes essential nutrients that women especially really need like magnesium, B vitamins, selenium, vitamin C, zinc, vitamin E. It disrupts the microbiome. It's linked to iron overload. It also can increase testosterone uptake, which will only worsen PCOS symptoms in the long run. I also want to quick touch on spironolactalone is another medication that's often prescribed to those with PCOS as it has an androgen blocker, and it's known to reduce some of those symptoms like acne and excess hair growth. So that's another another medication that sometimes people will get prescribed, which that has its own slew of side effects as well. Other ways to address PCOS beyond your standard blood work or what you would get done in your OBGYN's office is you could look into functional labs. And this is where functional labs can really, really come in handy for assessing areas of your body that are under stress, where there's inflammation, or your body is just under-resourced. Okay? So number one, thyroid panel. I cannot tell you how many times I talk to a client or meeting a client or I'm speaking to a potential client who has PCOS type symptoms or other ovarian dysfunctions. And I ask, have you had your thyroid checked? Has anyone at any point in time checked your thyroid? And I'd say 95%. No, I haven't had it checked. Or it's been it's been a year or two years. Or yeah, I had it checked, but we only looked at our TSH and my TSH was normal. I can't stress how important it is to get a full thyroid panel look at numbers beyond just your TSH. I'll link in the notes what to have your doctor test for, okay? But sometimes what can happen is a woman will get diagnosed with PCOS, but actually they have a thyroid problem. A lack of thyroid hormones is linked with worsening PCOS symptoms like insulin resistance. There's actually multiple studies linking insulin resistance as a natural consequence of hypothyroidism. So there's that. Also would would want to check your fasting glucose, your fasting insulin, and then looking into other functional labs, I would absolutely do a hair test. I do a hair test with every single client, regardless of what your symptoms look like. I'm obsessed with minerals. Go listen to the minerals podcast episode that I did. I disclosed and divulged a lot of helpful information relating how to support your minerals. But The HTMA or the hair tissue mineral analysis is a test that looks at your mineral levels by clipping a sample of your hair from the root of your head. So looks at the presence of your mineral levels and existence of heavy metals as well. And minerals, like I said in that episode, function like spark plugs in the body. They impact thousands of enzyme functions that are involved in blood sugar regulation your brain neurotransmitters, your digestion, stomach acid production, your adrenals, your thyroid, hormone production, liver detoxification. Minerals are literally involved in every single aspect of metabolism. And one of the common things that I see on the HTMA is you will see signs and symptoms of iron dysregulation So if you go and type into Google right now, iron overload and PCOS, you will find many articles and many studies linking issues with iron and PCOS. And I'm not talking about anemia or iron deficiency. That's actually not really a common thing as everyone says it is. When someone is told that they are anemic or low in iron, they actually have low bioavailable copper and their body's iron recycling system is not being well supported or well managed. There's multiple supporting nutrients that your body needs to properly have iron circulate oxygen in the blood. And so there's markers on the hair test that I will look at that can give me clues if someone may have some underlying issues with iron, okay? And iron overload is also linked to insulin resistance as well. Other things that I will look at on the hair test include 
your ratios related to your adrenals. So the balance of sodium and magnesium, also potassium, sodium, magnesium, and potassium all can connect to some of the symptoms of PCOS, but specifically sodium and magnesium can tell us what's going on with your adrenals. Are your adrenals very depleted? Are your adrenals in a state of, you know, being quote unquote fatigued, even though adrenal fatigue is not a real technical diagnosis, there are markers on the hair test that can suggest that the adrenals are are lacking reserves and they may not be functioning optimally. Okay. Low calcium, low magnesium, low copper. These are all essential minerals for supporting overall metabolic health. Low magnesium is associated with blood sugar issues, PMS, cardiovascular issues, difficulty with sleep, low mood, So addressing minerals is a big piece of the puzzle in supporting PCOS. Next thing I would absolutely look into is your digestion. Lots of connections of gut dysbiosis, bacteria, pathogens, and PCOS. The GI map is a stool test. It's the most commonly used test in the functional medicine world. This will assess the presence of pathogens like H. pylori, parasites, fungus, yeast, does the person have an overgrowth of bacteria? It also will tell us markers related to does this person have enough of the beneficial bacteria needed to protect the immune system, needed to extract nutrients from the diet? Is there signs that this person's not absorbing their nutrients well? Are they digesting fats properly? Are there markers showing us that this person might have leaky gut, which if you're having digestive issues, you likely have leaky gut. I see a lot of markers of leaky gut on stool tests. And so some of these things with our gut, by the way, you can have some of these things happening in your gut and have very few symptoms. Sometimes the symptoms of gut dysbiosis don't actually show up as bloating or constipation or IBS or gas, right? Sometimes the symptoms of gut dysbiosis show up as acne or fatigue or low energy, sleep issues, menstrual cycle irregularities, believe it or not, all right? These gut issues can happen from low stomach acid. Stomach acid is super, super important for not only helping to break down and plays a pivotal role in digestion, but it also plays a really important role in protecting your gut from pathogens and bacteria and overgrowth especially overgrowth of things like candida. Candida is very, very common in people with PCOS. Excess blood sugar also creates an environment in which candida really thrive in the gut. And if you pair that with a person that maybe doesn't have adequate stomach acid production, it just creates a situation in which these things can really take hold and overgrow in the gut and cause a lot of symptoms for people. All right. You also will see gut issues just due to poor diet, excess alcohol consumption, even the health of your thyroid. Your thyroid plays a big role in your gut health. Those two are very, very interconnected. Another functional lab that can be very helpful in assessing PCOS and what's going on from a hormone standpoint is the Dutch. I like the Dutch Complete. It's a urine test. You do a couple of samples of urine typically on days 19 and 20 of your cycle after you've ovulated. Obviously, if your ovulations are regular, we have to, you know, time that appropriately. But what this will look at is not only your hormone levels, but also how those hormones are being metabolized in the body. So some of the things that you might see off on a Dutch test is you'll see high estrogen, very common to see signs of estrogen dominance which can contribute to a lot of PMS type symptoms like sore breasts, fluid retention, bloating, insomnia, irritability, headaches around your menstrual cycle. You'll even see too where people might have normal levels of estrogen, but compared to their progesterone, they're in an estrogen dominant state where their progesterone production is not great. And so their estrogen is normal, but compared to their progesterone, it's still in a dominant state, which is contributing to those estrogen dominant symptoms. Remember too that normal may not be optimal for you. So just because a lab value is showing that it's within normal range, even on the Dutch, I've seen people where 
the little dial shows that their hormone level is within normal range, but it's still not optimal for them to manage their symptoms. Okay. So it's just another little quick caveat that I want to say about hormone testing and assessing lab values. Sometimes on the Dutch, you will see high testosterone, which will create some of those androgen symptoms that women experience with PCOS, like the acne, the oily skin, the anxiety, the anger, the irritability. It can also contribute to sluggish liver detoxification, high blood pressure, increased appetite when we have too much testosterone, all right? Sometimes though, testosterone isn't elevated, but they're still having those androgenic symptoms. And you kind of scratch your head and you're like, wow, their testosterone is really not that high. Or maybe even it's on the low side, but they have a lot of PCOS symptoms. And you're like, what's going on here? So one of the things I love about the Dutch is it shows something called 5-alpha reductase activity. 5-alpha reductase is when your androgens are converted into more potent DHT or alpha metabolites. These metabolites cause acne, hirsutism, hair loss on the head, anger, irritation, things that can promote upregulated or an increase in 5-alpha reductase activity include chronic inflammation, obesity, high insulin, and sometimes genetics play a role. So if we see on the Dutch upregulated or really high 5-alpha reductase activity, there's an invitation to look deeper and see, all right, how can we lower that activity in the body? What are some sources of inflammation that are happening? What are some different things that might be contributing to this so we can lower those androgenic symptoms for a person? I also love that the Dutch assesses cortisol. Cortisol is a big piece of the picture with PCOS. So the adrenals are often on the struggle bus when someone has PCOS. There's a lot of connection there. It's common to see high cortisol on the Dutch. This is due to stress. Or another cause of this is gut inflammation. Believe it or not, gut pathogens can drive up cortisol, which will also have a ripple effect on weight gain, irregular cycles, and elevated androgen hormones. This is where nothing happens in isolation in the body. And this is where looking at some of these different functional lab tests and piecing together the puzzle of where the body is stressed or under-resourced can be so helpful in figuring out what areas of the body need some support. All right, let's go through and talk about some healing strategies, some areas that you can start to work on now. If you're not in a place of being able to do labs yet, or you're just like, help me get started. This is where I would start. Number one, work on your blood sugar. Okay, go grab the book Glucose Revolution, or go follow Glucose Goddess on Instagram. She is incredible. She's been interviewed on a lot of podcasts. I'd love to have her on this podcast. You never know, maybe someday we'll get her on here. Also, I I did cover, again, I talked about blood sugar. In one of the first episodes that we did, it was called The Beginner's Guide to Metabolism. In the part one episode, I give a lot of strategies for addressing blood sugar, all right? Primarily, areas that you could work on with blood sugar is being very protein-focused with your food, all right? So when you go to sit down at a meal, aim for 20 to 30 grams of bioavailable animal-based protein at every single meal, Start out your meal with a little bit of apple cider vinegar diluted in some water. One to two tablespoons in some water is known to delay how quickly the glucose from your food hits your bloodstream. Another thing you could do a little trick for blood sugar is start your meal with a small fiber source like a raw carrot salad, which raw carrot salad is incredible for your gut, for removing endotoxins from the gut. Um, It's also known to help lower estrogen. So people that are dealing with estrogen dominance... It can help with some of that, those types of symptoms, but that uh, fiber source also is known to help delay how quickly the glucose from your food hits your bloodstream. I'm, I don't tell people if they're dealing with blood sugar issues that they need to necessarily be low carb. I actually find that low carb diets can be very stressful for women, can lead to elevated levels of cortisol. And again, avoiding carbs is just a band-aid to a bigger issue when it comes to blood sugar. So Again, go listen to that episode. Another tip for balancing blood sugar is incorporate more movement and walking surrounding your big meals. So if you have a really big dinner, 
you go to your favorite restaurant or, or you make your favorite pasta dish at home, you're eating more carbs than normal maybe, go for even a 10-minute walk after meals. That is huge for putting that food, that glucose to use. Your muscles use that glucose when you move, right? Um, strength training, huge for helping with blood sugar dysregulation. The more muscle mass that you have on your body, um, the more sensitive your body is going to be to insulin. Number two, no intermittent fasting. All right. Intermittent fasting contributes to a lot of cortisol issues in women. So eat breakfast within at least an hour of waking. All right. We want to have some protein, some carbs, and some fats at breakfast. And newsflash, an egg and a slice of toast is not a big enough breakfast, in my opinion. I totally understand if you don't have much of a morning appetite. Sometimes you have to do a small breakfast and do something a little bit bigger later. You know, sometimes if you're in a season of high stress, or if your mornings are stressful, or you know that you have high cortisol in the morning, which this is something that I've dealt with over the years, my cortisol has improved a ton. But I used to have very high cortisol in the morning, which cortisol will suppress your appetite. And so I literally had to force myself to eat breakfast because I just wasn't hungry. So eating breakfast, this is an anti-stress habit going to support healthier levels of cortisol in the long run. All right. Next thing, not all carbs are created equal. I'm not going to tell you that you need to avoid carbs, but your baked goods, your white bread, pasta, your refined grains and refined carbs and your simple sugars, you know, your cookies, your treats and things like that. These are notoriously inflammatory for those with PCOS is not to say that you should avoid carbs completely, but complex carbs are going to be a better option for you. Always paired with protein and fat. I want to say too, if you're going to have simple carbs, which again, simple carbs are not necessarily bad. It's just that your body breaks them down into glucose very quickly, which can lead to a big blood sugar spike. And I'm talking examples of simple carbs does include things like soda or baked goods, but also even like fruit juice, like orange juice, which this is where you might be listening and be like, but wait, you talk about adrenal cocktails all the time. And you drink orange juice every day. Or banana technically is a source of simple carbohydrates. Again, these are not all simple carbohydrates are bad. Orange juice actually has a ton of nutrients in it. So do bananas, right? But context is really key here. And so I would not recommend if you have PCOS or you're struggling with blood sugar issues or insulin resistance, when you have those simple carbohydrates, timing them at a time when you are going to be able to take that quick increase of glucose into your bloodstream and use it, right? So maybe you drink an adrenal cocktail around a time that maybe you're going to go for a walk or you make a smoothie and you're throwing in your strawberries and your banana and those quick sources of glucose that spring straight up glucose into your bloodstream around a time when you're going to exercise or your body just exercised and you're going to take that glucose and it's going to get shuttled right into your into your muscles for energy. All right. Um, I would not recommend drinking a glass of orange juice and then going and sitting on the couch. And again, one of the things that you can do with those simple carbohydrates is try to pair it with as much protein as possible to help delay how quickly that glucose hits your bloodstream. Next, I would evaluate your caffeine intake. I am not anti- coffee over here. I actually love coffee. I went through a long season last year into beginning of this year where I avoided coffee for almost nine months. I cut it out because again, I had really high morning cortisol and it was just contributing to more stress on my adrenals. I've recently started to reintroduce coffee to just to see how my body responds. And I have it a couple times a week, but coffee can disrupt ovulation by increasing cortisol levels via stressing the adrenals. The acidity in coffee can cause gut problems. So if you are going to drink coffee, I would look into something that is not as acidic. Coffee can also deplete essential nutrients needed for ovulation and optimal hormones, including B vitamins, and it can flush out your magnesium. So if you're going to have coffee or have caffeine, be mindful of consumption, maybe limit to one cup daily, 
pair it with some protein, like I like to add a scoop of collagen to my coffee, and some fat, whether it's milk or half and half, and consume it after breakfast. Do not have it on an empty stomach, all right? Next thing I would work on is working on your minerals. So if you're not taking magnesium, again, go listen to the minerals podcast. It is so good. It's such a good one. Incorporate magnesium lotion into your routine at night or spray. Add some magnesium flakes to a bath, all right? Baths are incredible for getting in magnesium, but also unwinding and working on reducing stress. Bring a good book, leave your phone out of the room, dim the lights, light a candle, put on a red light, do it, okay? Incorporating some sources of potassium. I see low potassium on hair tests all the time, and potassium is an electrolyte mineral that helps your cells uptake thyroid hormone. So if you're dealing with fatigue and low energy, and you just feel sluggish, and you're easily irritated and frazzled, or you have digestive issues, those are all things linked to low potassium. If you have muscle cramps, muscle twitches, increase your potassium. So that's where the adrenal cocktail can be very helpful. Just do it in a blood sugar friendly way. Coconut water, fresh ripe fruits, potatoes are really high in potassium, squash, root vegetables. You could also could look into hydration powders. There's a hydration powder that I really love from a company called Ravy, R-A-Y-V-I. You can go to shopravy.com. They have an electrolyte powder that's almost 900 milligrams of potassium, which is a lot. But the main mineral deficiencies associated with PCOS are magnesium, calcium, and potassium. Next thing I would say is incorporating strength training. I touched on that a little bit earlier when I started to talk about blood sugar. So this goes without saying, I feel like this should be common knowledge now, but research suggests that strength training has more benefits, especially for people with PCOS because that increase in muscle mass increases your sensitivity to insulin, which is going to benefit your overall blood sugar, which is also going to help you better burn fat, which is an issue that a lot of people with PCOS have. They have difficulty burning fat, losing weight, managing blood sugar. So at a minimum, I would incorporate three days of strength training. If you are in a season of high stress, or you're very depleted, very low on energy, and you feel like incorporating strength training is just going to tip tip you over the edge, I just want to encourage you that even if you just do 20, 30 minutes, and you do low reps, heavier volume, lots of rest between sets, strength training does not have to look like this super intense CrossFit type of workout. You literally could just go get some dumbbells, or go to a Planet Fitness, you know, if you have access to a bench and some dumbbells or some kettlebells, you really don't need a lot. And simple movements, right? Working on your squat, an overhead press, push-ups, a bench press, deadlifting or Romanian deadlifts. I mean, there's so many free resources on YouTube. There's so many apps out there. But if you're very tired, which I I will just be honest with you guys over here, I'm recovering from having COVID. You can probably hear it as I talk right now. I have a lot of congestion. I had a really rough April with my own personal health. I wasn't very, I haven't shared a ton about it on my Instagram. I've just been kind of putting my head down and just getting through because we're also in a very busy season of life with my business, my husband's business. We also pulled the trigger on building a house in Florida. So we have our our head is distracted on, on that. We have a lot of things that we're trying to decide for our family right now. I got sick end of March. And I have had a lot of post-COVID sinus issues, chest congestion, fatigue. It just knocked me down. It did. And so I did not lift weights or exercise once in the month of April. I think I went to one bar three class and I've just been doing some Pilates and walking. And this past week, I so far lifted two times this past week. I don't feel like it. I feel like the longer you go without lifting, the harder it is to get back into it. But I just keep reminding myself that even though I don't feel 100% and I don't have all this 
amazing, abundant energy, and I'm not super motivated right now, I remind myself that even if I just show up for 20, 30 minutes, and just do three sets of 10 reps of some squats, and I give myself three minutes of rest between each set, where I'm not making my heart rate super high, I'm not drenched in sweat, I'm just working on really solid form, right? Doing a volume that is challenging myself, but it's not killing me. I'm not dead at the end of the workout. You know, we don't have to look at strength training as this thing where we're doing it to like punish ourselves, right? So if you're not in that place of like wanting to have crazy high gains or achieve a PR, really push yourself, that is a hundred percent okay. I'm not there right now either. I am just showing up to show up and try to just maintain what I've worked really hard to build. And just keep that muscle memory and that habit going. All right. So that's my little soapbox on that. Next, I want to talk about sleep. So we know that sleep is essential for overall metabolism, but especially those that are struggling with hormone issues. Poor sleep is associated with an increased risk of insulin resistance, obesity, and overall inflammation. If you are going to bed at 11 or later, all right, even if you're getting eight hours of sleep, you are going to have less quality sleep. And I've tracked this myself with the aura ring. The earlier you go to bed, the more REM sleep, deep sleep you are going to experience. And those are the sleep cycles that are most healing and restorative to your body. So I try to encourage my clients to aim for a 10 p.m. bedtime. Obviously, I know that's not possible for everyone. I know some people work shift work. Some people, you know, you have children, co-sleeping. There are different seasons of life where quality sleep. It's just not on the table. But that is a big contributor to some of the symptoms and and issues that we see with PCOS. So dialing in on sleep hygiene is very, very important. Um, Sometimes we're doing things that we don't even realize are contributing to poor sleep hygiene, like scrolling on our phone late at night, eating sugar or eating things too close to bed. For some people that can lead to an increase in blood sugar, which will disrupt your sleep. So some people need to kind of cut it off a little bit earlier with food. I noticed for myself, I actually do like a little bit of a bedtime snack. But if I have a bedtime snack too close to sleep, I've tracked this with my aura ring too, it actually will disrupt my sleep cycles, I will have less REM sleep and deep sleep if I eat too close to bed. So Another thing that I also would consider is some supplements. So I talked about magnesium. Magnesium glycinate is a pretty easy one that most people can incorporate with no issues. Take it in the evening. It's very calming, helps with your blood sugar, with digestion, mood, energy production. Start slow. Obviously, when you're starting a new supplement, and again, check with your doctor if you have any questions on whether or not it's safe for you to take magnesium. I am not your practitioner here. So these are just recommendations that I'm putting out there. But do your own research. Magnesium glycinate is usually an easy one for people to incorporate. All right. I also would look into things that can help lower inflammation. So supplements that include things like curcumin, cinnamon, turmeric, ginger, quercetin are all very anti-inflammatory. NAC, also known as N-acetylcysteine, is an easy one to incorporate. It's a powerful antioxidant. It's actually known to balance testosterone levels, improve fertility, regulate your cycle, and it supports liver detoxification. Incorporating some sources of B vitamins. So number one way that I like to get B vitamins into my diet is eating lots of red meat. I eat red meat a couple times a week. We do steak at least once a week. And then in between, I'll have grass-fed beef or bison. I like lamb a lot. I have like this really good uh, lamb curry meatball recipe that we make. Beef liver pills is great. Bee pollen is also very high in B vitamins and bioavailable copper, All right? Berberine. So berberine is a natural plant compound, and there are lots of studies showing its benefits for supporting healthy blood sugar levels. Another thing I would look into is inositol. I personally really like there's a supplement, you can get it on Amazon, or you can buy it direct. There's a supplement called Ovasitol, O-V-A-S-I-T-O-L. Very popular in the functional medicine alternative health world. It is a blend of 
myo-inositol and d-chiro-inositol. Myo-inositol is a sugar molecule that is naturally found in a variety of foods such as fruits, vegetables, greens, and nuts. It's considered a type of B vitamin. It acts as a key building block for signaling molecules. If you just go on Amazon, type in Ovacetol and read the reviews on that supplement, that will be enough for you to want to buy it. I'll I'll just put it that way. Worth considering if you have insulin resistance, irregular or long cycles of more than 30 days, any hormonal disruptions that are associated with PCOS, like high testosterone, history of miscarriages, unexplained infertility. If you're dealing with fertility issues, incorporate Ovacetol. Okay, just do it. Obviously, ask your doctor if you're nervous or you don't know for sure if it's the right thing for you. Hopefully, they know what it is. But the testimonies speak for themselves. I've had great success with Ovacetol. And then, of course, low-tox. Go low-tox. This is where filtering your water, stop drinking out of plastics. I would look into ditching your personal care products, your cleaning products that have chemicals and toxins that can disrupt your endocrine system. EWG.org is a fantastic resource for looking for more non-toxic alternatives. I also really like there was an app called Think Dirty App. You also might want to look into on EWG.org, there is a list of their dirty dozen list. Those are the fruits and produce that have the highest amounts of pesticides. And so that is where you would want to buy those foods organic. These are typically like the fruits and vegetables where you're eating the skin. So your leafy greens, your berries, apples, things like that are typically on the dirty dozen list. I also would look into buying organic meat whenever possible versus doing your conventionally farmed meat, ditching synthetic fragrance, evaluate your food storage, your cookware. Again, this is a process. This is not something that happens overnight. So don't feel like you have to fix everything all at once. But again, the more informed and empowered you are on how those things can disrupt your hormones, the better off you're going to be. And then last but not least, addressing sources of stress. I talk about stress, I feel like in almost every single podcast episode, because it is truly the root cause of so much dysfunction in the body. This is where building out your toolkit of stress reduction practices is so important. So whether that looks like meditation, breath work, EFT or tapping, and for some of us type A's like me over here, us control freaks that like to schedule every section of our day, the idea of like pulling out a little pillow and turning on some calming music and tapping on my body feels a little woo-woo or feels just a little bit like I don't have time for this. But I have gotten to a point in my life that I almost feel like I don't have a choice. I have to do these things because it makes such a big difference in how my body handles stress and how I respond as a mother to my children when I get triggered because they're fighting in the car in the backseat. And I've had a long day of work. And the days that I work on my own stress reduction before I transition out of work to picking up my kids, I'll give you an example. So one of the things that I personally do is after a long day of work, I will spend five to 10 minutes, I will go up to my bedroom, turn on my sound machine, I lay on my prana mat, and sometimes I will listen to a guided meditation. Sometimes I do breath work. Sometimes I do tapping. It looks a little bit different depending on how much time I have. Sometimes I do it in the driveway before I even pull out of the car. I just sit there and do some deep breaths before I put that car in reverse, right? The days that I do that, I am so much more calm and resilient to whatever curveballs I might be thrown at as a mother. My kids are seven and nine. They're amazing, healthy, lovely, vibrant children. But I have a boy and a girl. They're feisty. They're strong willed. They fight. You know, my kids will like smack each other in the back seat. They cut each other off while they're talking and then they get mad. I don't know. Maybe someone listening can relate to this. Maybe it's just me that deals with this. But 
Sometimes as a mom, when that happens, you just want to turn around and wig out, right? And sometimes I do lose my mind. And I'm working on that. I don't want to be the mom that yells. I don't want to be the mom that flips out and reacts and then then has to later apologize because I overreacted. And so for me, this woo-woo meditation and breath work and tapping is a game changer for that. Cold exposure has also been a game changer for me. I started out in a plastic blow-up tub, like literally the kind of tub that women would probably give birth in. I literally filled up a plastic tub on my deck with my hose and started cold plunging in my backyard. And then we bought an old chest freezer. And (laughs) now we have a real deal cold plunge tub. But if you're new to cold plunging, don't feel like you have to go spend thousands of dollars on a bougie tub. You can start with a cheapy plastic blow up tub or even an old chest freezer. Ask around on Facebook Marketplace. You'd be surprised what you can find. Literally, the the chest freezer that I used for almost a year was probably older than I am. Journaling, therapy, working on your sleep hygiene is also going to translate to lower stress as well. Whatever you have to do, acupuncture, just pick something and start, okay? I feel like I can say this till I'm blue in the face, but if your nervous system is actively in that state of fight or flight, if you're chronically in the chasing the to-dos, chasing the next thing that you need to get done, productivity, and you don't know how to relax and stop and smell the roses and take time to just exist and sit and check in with yourself and be present, you are going to see downstream effects in your physical body. This is where people start to experience physical symptoms like digestive issues, pain, depression, hormone imbalances, the thyroid stops working properly. And I know that people don't want to hear it, right? We're in a culture that just glorifies success and achievement and productivity. I get it. I'm an Enneagram three. I'm an achiever. I love to get crap done and be successful, right? Whatever that looks like. But the body keeps a score. Anyways, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I know that this is a lot of information. If you have any questions on this podcast, you can go ahead and email fueledandfreepodcast at gmail.com. You can also message me on Instagram, check out the show notes. There's lots of links and resources below. I also just want to encourage you to that PCOS is not a death sentence for your fertility. It is not your forever diagnosis. There is so much that you can do from a holistic natural standpoint to manage your symptoms and put this into remission. And so if you need direct, guided, one-on-one support. If you're tired of DIYing it, tired of chasing your symptoms, check out my website, www.fueledandfree.com. This is my six-month signature program. This is the main way that you can work with me one-on-one and access functional labs. This program is called The Collective. We have over 50 members in this group right now, um, and we're enrolling for May 15th is the next intake for that program. All right. Thanks so much for listening and have a great one. Thank you for listening to the Fueled and Free podcast. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Learn more at margaretannpowell.com and follow me on Instagram at margaretannpowell.com.